0: Genesis chapter 6 is where we continue our study. Last week we looked at what is the most debated and most difficult passage in all of Genesis, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. And this is a first half of 1 through 8. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8 today. In 1 through 4, that passage presented two major interpretive challenges for us, and that is the intermarriage of the sons of God and the daughters of men and how can we really understand that and there are four major interpretive options for how that is to be understood and very, very briefly one is that the godly men from the line of Seth married the ungodly women from the line of Cain and therefore intermarried together the second way, which is textually correct is angels who abandoned their proper roles their proper abode and, and took on the form of men and married women. There are the, there's the third interpretive challenge. It's the rulers and the judges or the aristocracy that has chosen women, any that they wanted to marry. And sometimes, or some believe that this may have led to harems. And the fourth leading interpretive conclusion is that these were men possessed by demons who married women, leading to a civilization that is now taken over by Satan and his host of fallen angels. So I can't go into each of these in any kind of detail. Those strengths and weaknesses of each position were detailed last time, and if you're interested in learning more about that, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's message or to read up for yourselves on what these interpretive options actually are. The second major obstacle that we found in this passage is who were the Nephilim? Some believed Some believe that the Nephilim are the offspring between the sons of God and the daughters of men. But the text says that these... Nephilim were on the earth in those days and afterward, which seems to indicate that when the sons of God or sons of God married the daughters of men, the Nephilim were already there. So there's a lot of challenges in how to understand that. And there's a footnote or a parenthetical statement that is found in verse 4 that says the Nephilim were the mighty men, the men of renown. These men, the Nephilim or the giants, as Numbers 13 would tell us, these men were thought to be demigods or semi-divine creatures who were unconquerable. These were like mythological creatures who were just warriors who could not be stopped and could not be defeated. And so, their inclusion here seems to be Moses' way of demythologizing who the Israelites thought these mighty men, these warriors actually were. So remembering that if Moses actually wrote this during the wilderness wandering, the Egypt, excuse me, the Israelites are leaving a 430 year slavery to the nation of Egypt, where they have been exposed to 1,500 to 2,000 different little g gods, And so Moses' attempt is to undo years of false understanding rooted in pagan worship that the Israelites would have carried with them out of Egypt into the wilderness wanderings, and then eventually into the promised land. So a lot there, more than actually could ever be unearthed in any single setting, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Now in our passage today, we're going to focus on the second half of the epilogue, and that is God's angry sorrow over mankind's wickedness. So we're introduced to this theme in verse three from last week's passage, and as you have your Bibles there, you can read along. The Lord said in verse three, "My spirit shall not strive with men forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years." So it is clear from this verse, from this verse, that not all is well, and the very good of God's creation. And this will lead us into reading our verses today, and then beginning to unearth what this means. So, verse 5 and following. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So a little bit of an introductory comment about these verses we're looking at today. Verses 1 through 8 as a whole conclude book 2 of the 10 books in Genesis, and it puts a closure on that generations of Seth. These verses close out that genealogy and it forms a bridge to the flood narrative and the upcoming generations that are going to be told about Noah. So when reading these eight verses together, it is easy to see that there is a single cause-effect relationship Between what's going on on earth and the end result of what's going on on earth, and that is the flood. So, some think that the sons of God marrying the daughters of men is a single event that causes the unearthing, or excuse me, the flood waters to come and then the wiping out of all flesh. On the earth. I would argue that there isn't a single cause-effect relationship that brought about the flood. So when you go back and read the genealogy of Seth, the seventh son listed, Lamech, not the son of Cain, who then fathered the sons who were fathers of civilization. Lamech, from the seventh son listed in the genealogy of Seth, gives birth to Noah, and when Noah is born, we read in Genesis five twenty nine. Now he, Lamech, called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So at this point in history, Noah is born. Some 1,500 years has passed after the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. And within the first family there is the murder of Abel by his brother Cain, Cain's fifth son Lamech, father's three sons, who are credited with building a godless civilization filled with violence, tyrannical rule, the introduction of polygamy, and all sorts of other kinds of sin. There's been nothing that has slowed down the rapid increase of sin... And when Noah is born within the godly line of Seth, there is from Lamech a stated desire and perhaps even a great need for rest from the effect of the curse that was initiated some 1,500 years earlier through Adam and Eve in the garden. It would be incredibly naive to think that there is no sin problem within the godly line of Seth if you believe that the sons of god are from the are from the godly line of seth marrying the daughters of men that is a very strong indication that all is not well within the godly line of seth but even if that is not the correct interpretation it would be naive to think that Sin is only prevalent within the ungodly line of Cain when Lamech, who is the father of Noah, is seemingly asking for this rest from the curse that has been theirs for some 1,500 years, passed down from the sin of Adam and Eve. So to think that there is no problem of sin within the godly line of Seth is an incredibly... Generous way of looking at the line of Seth and it's very, very naive to think that sin was only being lived out within the line of Cain. So as we already know, only Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives will find safety safety from the flood upon the ark. Eight people from among the tens or hundreds of millions of people that populate the earth are going to be saved from this universal flood. God says in Genesis 7, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. So if all is well within the line of Seth, why is it that only Noah has found favor in the sight of God? What has taken place in this 1,500 years of history that Genesis does not... Detail in any form or fashion is a rapid population and an overwhelming increase in the prevalence of sin to the point that when Lamech gives birth to Noah, he is seemingly crying out from rest from the curse of sin and only Noah is found to be righteous Only Noah's family was seen fit by God to be saved from death. Now, in the extra-biblical writings that are not included in the canonization of Scripture, Jewish historians and others have chronicled that during the 120-year period between the proclamation of the flood and the completion of the ark, Noah preached. And he preached a repentance. He He preached a message that would enable them to be saved from the flood. Now that's not in the Bible, that's part of the tradition, it's part of the law of Noah that has been passed out from non-biblical sources, and whether that's true or not, we cannot say emphatically, but the New Testament identifies Noah as a great man of faith, a man of great righteousness, and it would probably be a little naive to think that Noah wasn't vocal in his faith, that he wasn't crying out for the repentance of his own family line, whatever happened in the time that God proclaimed the coming of the flood and the completion of the ark... Only Noah and his seven members, and only seven members of that family found favor in the sight of God to be saved from the universal flood. The sin and wickedness of mankind is pervasive and the very good world that God created has been thoroughly and completely corrupted by the sin of man. So while it's easy to think there is a single cause-effect relationship between the sin described in six one through four and the declaration by God in verses five through eight that He was going to blot out man, the events of six one to four are simply the tipping point of some fifteen hundred years of rapidly increasing sin and wickedness. So as God looks from His righteous throne upon the world He made, He sees complete depravity, utter depravity. There is none other than Noah who exemplifies any of the righteousness that exists within the person of God in the extension of grace passed down from Adam and his line. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So during the work of creation in chapter 1 that we looked at over several weeks, within most of the segments of creation, God looked upon what he made and what did he say? It was good. And when God said it was good, it meant it reflects my glory. It demonstrates my power. It is a glimpse into the great God that I am. And God, not patting himself on the back, but only signaling how he has made himself known through the beauty and the wonder of creation, says, It was good. And upon the completion of every facet of creation, when man and woman were created and given their only prohibition, God, Declared it was very good, exceedingly good. Now, from His righteous throne, with laser precision, God in His omnipresence sees what mankind has made of His very good creation, and the very good of God's creation is now contrasted with the greatness of man's wickedness. Verse 5 says, The wickedness of man was great, On the earth. There's a bit of a wordplay that Moses is using as he contrasts the greatness of the very good world that God has made, and now the greatness of the wickedness of man. Notice how man's wickedness is described here. Every intent, only evil, continually. This paints a picture of mankind not just being bad, but being thoroughly and completely corrupt. In Hebrew, the heart is the center of the cognitive process. It isn't a feeling. It isn't a place of feeling. It's not a place of emotion. It is a place of willful decision-making. It's a place where decisions are made and determined action is therefore carried out and sin runs so deeply that it dominates the thoughts and it's not just an overt action. Evil is planned as a matter of lifestyle. Today I think of terrorist organizations that do nothing but sit around and plan how they can attack and how they can hurt and how they can destroy their enemies. Every waking moment is spent planning for bloodshed, is gathering resources for those methods, and then it's celebrating when people are injured or are killed. Imagine waking up first thing in the morning and thinking to yourself, what evil can I perform today upon my enemies? How can I inflict pain and misery upon those that I don't like, upon those that I don't disagree with, or upon those who have the audacity to oppose me in any form or fashion? I am looking for an opportunity to inflict pain. And that kind of that kind of lifestyle, that kind of thought process dominated your day. All day, every day, week after week and month after month. This is the kind of picture image that is being painted for us when it says that every intent is only evil continually. In the same way here in Genesis... Mankind is so thoroughly affected by this sinful compulsion that every intent of the thought of his heart is only evil continually, all the time. There is nothing else that infiltrates the mind other than the planning of evil, A holy, a righteous, a loving, and a gracious God provided for mankind everything he could ever want, everything he could ever need. It was rooted in trusting God and following His commands, and man has discarded it like it's toxic. This is how mankind considers this great God who has created this world that is being lived in, they want nothing to do with Him. They only want to run their own lives as they see fit, and the running of that life is rooted in a sinful inclination day after day, week after week. Going back to the tempter in the garden, God did not say... Breeding doubt for His Word. God will not, will not do. Breeding doubt about God's righteous response. God is holding you back, creating doubt about the heart and the motivation of why God has said, why God has declared the boundaries that He's had. And this is the exact same Enemy that we're dealing with today, who causes us to doubt his word, to doubt his response, and to doubt God's action excuse me, doubt to doubt God's motives and why he does what he does. This mentality rooted in the temptation of the garden is being played out exactly how the enemy desired, in total and complete defiance of the one true God, of his word and of his desires for the mankind that is the crown jewel of His creation. Sadly, this reality that we see in Genesis isn't only experienced in the book of Genesis. This sin sickness is alive and well in our world today and has been throughout man's history. I don't know that we could ever look back at a period of history and say there's been a significant break and the overwhelming evilness that is, that is in existence within mankind. I can't remember this number. I've heard it some days. Uh, I've heard it before. I don't remember. I won't repeat it. But in man's history, there's just a sliver of time that there has not been war. There has not been unrest within what God has made. I can't remember the number. But if you believe in a young earth and it's around six, seven, eight thousand years, only a small number of years, maybe a hundred or two hundred years, where there has been peace in our world. The psalmist described the sinful hearts of man, of those who stand opposed to God, and he would say this, O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So several hundreds of years later, perhaps even a thousand years, Paul picks up on this same line of thinking when he looks upon the enemies of God in his own day. And he would say in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 18, this is all cap because this is what it, this is how it's used in my Bible. And when it quotes the Old Testament, it does so in all caps. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving the poison of asps is upon their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes this is not unique to Genesis it's not unique to the psalmist it's not unique to Paul in the book of Romans this is what's taking place in our today, it is what is being lived out in the minds of those who oppose God and are the enemies of God, and this is by and large the dominant influential factor in our world today. Well, God is well aware, and God will not sit by and let sin and evil and disobedience go unchecked. He may not do it as quickly as we thought he would or we would like for him to, but God is not slack regarding his purposes and God isn't missing a thing. He didn't miss any of this going on in the book of Genesis. The so number two in our outline, we see in this passage, righteous justice. Verse 6 says, The Lord was sorry that He made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. Now this verse creates some challenges for us and our understanding. And so what words mean when they are applied to human emotion, are imperfectly applied... To what they mean when, when they fit for God. So human emotion applied for human means something very, very different when it's applied for God. It is an imperfect application, but it's all we know. It's all we have. Our vocabulary and what it means to us. So for example, love. We talk about love and for us, love is predominantly an emotion. It's characterized as feelings. It is intense desires. But for God, love is an action determined by what is best for the individual, independent of any, of any feeling. In love, God sent His Son. It wasn't how God felt about sending a Son. Applying human emotion, God would not have sent His Son because it was going to bring about a great loss. It was going to be a great injustice. In love, God disciplines He's not motivated by our pouting or our anger or our running. God loves, God disciplines independent of emotion because it's what what is best for us. So emotion has nothing to do with God's actions, although we apply human emotion to God and we do so imperfectly. So here in our verse it says that God was sorry He made man. Now this is not God regretting He made man, but it is sorrow over what man has made of himself. Now, God is omnipotent. It isn't like He didn't know that man's sinfulness was going to be so pervasive that it had to be dealt with. His perfect knowledge doesn't make the sadness of the reality of man's plight any less sad. Let me say that again. God's knowledge is perfect. God knows our thoughts before we think them. Not just now, but to the end of our days. God did not create man and put him in this perfect world and some 1600 years ago, uh oh, what is going on? I wasn't expecting this. I regret that I ever made man. That's not what God is thinking or feeling at all. God knows the plight of man. And God knows what man has made of himself. And there is a real sense of sadness within the heart of God about what he is going to have to do because of what man has made of himself. God is personal. He's not apathetic to man's condition. He's not indifferent to man's need. He feels... But what God feels and the way He feels is very different from the way that we feel. So here, God is expressing His sorrow. This expression is anthropomorphic, meaning that God is speaking in human terms so that man can understand the depth of what God is feeling here. So, for example, if we were to say, I wish that person never would have been born, we are expressing the deepest sense of regret and sorrow and anger that we could ever feel. So imagine how you would feel if your parent or your spouse or your child would say to you, I wish you had never been born. How would you feel? Well, you know, sticks and stones break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Fooey, that's a lie. People today are still affected by the things their parents have said about them, the way their friends have ridiculed them. And if someone were to say to you, I regret the day you were born, it should cut you to the quick. It should affect you deeply. It would grieve you perhaps even permanently, and God wants us to understand how the total depravity of man makes Him feel. He can only do that by using our understanding of human emotion. It's as if God wishes He never made man, but that's not what God is saying. The depth of sorrow He feels For what man has made of himself has deeply grieved the heart of God. Why? Because God knows he is going to have to respond justly. I remember raising my children when they were little. And we were spankers. We believed there was a physical consequence for disobedience that needed to be experienced. And there was a period where one of my kids just really struggled with connecting the dot. And he would do the one thing that he was told over and over and over he could not do. You cannot hit your brother. You cannot do that. If you do that, I am going to spank you. Invariably, he would hit and I would go, I've got to go spank him. I don't want to do that. I hate the way that makes me feel. I hate hearing Him cry. I hate the wet, warm tears on my shoulder after I've done that. It grieves me deeply that I have to do that. And this is what God is saying. That He was sorry that He made man. God does not rejoice over punishing the wicked. He doesn't. Now do you? I do I do I shouldn't but I do and there are times in my life when I go I can't wait when he gets what's coming to him God's going to get him that God does not rejoice in punishing the wicked. As an example, when Jesus in His triumphal entry came in to the hill and overlooked the city of Jerusalem, it says that He wept. Luke nineteen forty one and 42, when He approached Jerusalem, He saw the city and wept over it saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which made for peace... But now they have been hidden from your eyes. He was the one that would make peace for them. It was their obedience to Him as the Messiah that would spare them from the overthrowing of the city of Jerusalem by the hands of the Romans some 30 years later. In His omniscience, God knows what He's going to have to do and it sorrows Him that He's going to have to do that because of what we've done. God here, God is deeply grieved over what He is justly going to do when He brings about a universal flood that is going to eliminate all flesh with the exception of eight people and the flesh on the ark. Think about that. Conservatively, tens of millions of people at this time. Probably hundreds of millions. And some would argue perhaps even billions of people. And God is going... To erase it all. Verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. To blot something out means exactly what it sounds like. God is going to erase everything. With the exception of what exists on the earth and the beasts that are going to be in the water. God is not impulsive and God is not unpredictable. He is not capricious in what He does. He's not like the man made gods that the Israelites were very well aware of coming out of Egypt. His his irrevocable action against humanity is His his righteous response for a thoroughly sinful people who have been given over to complete and total depravity. But all hope is not lost. We see here divine grace. Verse 8, But... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Out of the mass of humanity, Noah stands out above and beyond all the rest. He stands alone. In Genesis 6-9, which is the first verse of the third book of, gener- of, ge- excuse me, the third book of Genesis, the generations of Noah... It begins with this description, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. What about the godly line of Seth? There's no mention of them. None, only Noah. So because Noah was a righteous man, because Noah walked with God, he had found favor in the eyes of God, and the prophesied words of his father Lamech, begin to ring true. Noah will bring bring rest from the toil of the cursed ground, the sinful reality of creation gone bad. God is going to wipe it out. And through Noah, a remnant of grace extends through his sons, and the future of man's existence will flow through him. But this grace is going to come at a very, very high cost. Does that sound familiar? Is it any more amazing that our redemption required the price of God's one and only Son? The line of grace extended through Noah comes at the wiping out of all living flesh except that which lives upon the ark. flood will not change the heart of man nor will it set him free from the curse of sin only the blood of Christ will do that but man will know how grievous his sin is and how seriously God takes it when they remember the flood account I would imagine by human standards there are many many in our world today that would read this and say that seems a little bit drastic to me I mean come on Nobody but Noah. There's nobody else but Noah. What about all those innocent animals? The price of sin is great. The righteousness of God is beyond our ability to comprehend, to understand, to define, to appreciate. It is a severe punishment. But God's holy and righteous standard will not be compromised. And make no mistake about it, God's actions are always flowing from His complete set of attributes which include His grace, His mercy, His love, and His justness. Many in our world want to take the justness of God and place God's love and forgiveness over top of it as if God's justness doesn't exist. Well, you can't separate the attributes of God. They are part and parcel. They are all in one, all the time, perfectly exhibited in the actions of God. And He will not compromise that. He cannot compromise that. And so it ought to be a reminder to us today who have a full and complete revelation, who understand what the cross means, to look back at the flood and say, wow, sin is a big deal. God takes it very, very seriously. Praise God for the forgiveness of sin that comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. Praise God that He has chosen to impart to us the very righteousness of Christ that makes us acceptable to Him. Praise God that the day will come when the perfection of God's creation will be restored and the redeemed will enjoy it in the full presence of God's glory for eternity, time without end. I would hope that when we remember the flood narrative, we don't get bogged down in a lot of the interpretive challenges or try to read a lot between the lines, but we would just recognize how seriously God deals with sin. So much so that the only solution for sin was the sending of His one and only Son who would die in our place and pay our penalty. And become our consequence. From before the world began, before time even began, God looked into the future and said, You, and you, and you, and you, and you. And He did that all over what would become the population of the world. And He said, You will be my sons and my daughters And he didn't have to do that. In his full omniscience, God knew the mess we would make of our lives. And he would still say, I choose you. Would you pray with me?